Well, over the course of history, speeches have often made a really important impact. If you can think, uh, probably in school you will have read about it, but for example, President Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. And the, in the depths of the Civil War in the United States, after a terrible battle, then Abraham Lincoln gives a rousing speech that changes in many ways and, and solidifies northern attitudes, uh, and so therefore they continue this fight to end slavery. You can think maybe about Winston Churchill and about how it is that uh, he will fight them on the beaches and fight them in the air. This is at a time where England was at its darkest, where Nazi armies had engulfed all of Europe. It looked like all was lost, and he said, no, we draw our line here, we stand, and that changed the whole course of history. Martin Luther King, the I Have a Dream speech in the March in Washington, one of the most important events in American history because it really solidified the civil rights struggle and made, I think, many people who were indifferent to the plight of African Americans throughout the South and made them realize that this was something profoundly important, not just to people in the South, but to people throughout the country. Well, perhaps the most famous speech of all, however, is an excerpt is taken, or is the speech from which today's gospel is an excerpt. But this is part of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Just last week, uh, we were looking at, um, at this Feast of the Presentation, so we missed that and skipped over the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes. But this is, blessed are the poor and blessed are the meek. These are famous words. This happens right afterwards, after Jesus climbs up a hill so that he can be heard by the congregation who are gathered there, and he gives them many important challenges and many wonderful comforts about following Christ in his kingdom. I'd like to speak to you today about two elements that I think are present in this passage. And one is, Jesus gives us a vision of what we're to become, and he also gives us a pointer to how we can become the thing he says we should become. So I'll speak to you today about those two things, and then next week, again, we'll hear a little bit more about the Sermon on the Mount and some of the specifics about how Jesus encourages us to act in certain ways that are consistent with the life of the kingdom. I'm going to read to you from the first part of what Jesus says here, because they're really important words and important metaphors that tell us a lot about what we are called to become as Christians. This is what Jesus says in verse 13 of chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that we may see your good works, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, salt and light are things that we've often seen in life, we often read about. Here Jesus speaks about them. But to understand the impact of what Jesus is saying we're to become, stop and think a little bit about these elements Jesus is speaking about when he says what we are to be as Christians. Think about salt, for example, and what salt does in our lives, and particularly what it does in our... I'll tell you a little secret to how to roast a good chicken and give you an example about what salt is for. You ever had sometimes people say, well, chicken is the food you order when you don't really know what you want to have, right? Because chicken has often kind of got this reputation for being a bit bland sometimes. Now, I'll tell you why that often is. You know, when you want to cook a chicken and you just throw it into the oven and you cook it, many times you pull out the chicken and that Chicken doesn't have an awful lot of taste on its own. But there's a little secret that I stumbled across a while ago, and you're free to take it. <laughs> Here's the secret. When you are going to roast the chicken, first of all, you dry off all the skin on the outside. Then you kind of rub in a little bit of melted butter or oil. And here's the real trick. You take some salt, 
It's been ground up finely. And then you insert your hand in between the skin of the chicken and the flesh of the chicken, which I know sounds a little gross, but when you do that and you create a little space between the skin and the flesh, it's got a little air pocket, which allows the skin to get crispy. But here's the real thing that really makes it wonderful. You take the salt and you rub it into the flesh underneath the skin and let it sit there for a couple hours. And what the result is after you cook it is you get crispy skin on the outside because that air pocket. But you also have delicious chicken that doesn't taste salty if you get the right amount. Instead, it tastes super chickeny. It tastes great. You know what's great about that is that chicken's not flavorless. It's just that chicken needs a little helping hand to make it flavorful. And that helping hand is, yes, literally my hand, stuffing it with a, a little bit of a, a flavor. But metaphorically, a little bit of salt is there not so that you get a salty chicken. It's so that it brings out the natural flavor and taste that's present in the chicken. That's where salt is ideally used. It's not usually so that you'll get something tasting salty. You use it usually so that it's in a small amount. You don't even notice. It just makes the food taste better because it brings out the natural flavor in the food. Jesus, I think, is invoking this image when it comes to what we're to be as Christians. Many times we think about what a good Christian faithful life is, what a saintly life is, and we start thinking, well, here's a person who's famous for their good works, famous for the way that they are acting in godly ways. But Jesus suggests that, in fact, if we take the example of what salt is supposed to be, what a true saint is is not a person who draws attention to themselves by their godliness, but lifts up everybody around them so that the people whose lives they touch become more whole, more complete, and more godly. The other image that Jesus uses is light. And when you think about what light is, sometimes, again, we're mistaken. Here's the light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. We're thinking, everybody's going to look at my light. But in fact, that's not what light is for. If you got up this morning, it's dark every winter in the morning and tough to get up. But what do you do? You stumble downstairs because you want to get some coffee. What do you do? You flick on the light, and then you play with the coffee maker, and you get all the stuff ready, and then you know you bring it up to your wife and, and, and wake her up gently and say, here, honey, I'm so appreciative of what you do. The point is, you don't go and turn on the light and then stare at the lamp and say, wow, it's a, a beautiful lamp. No, you turn on the light so that you can see the coffee maker, so that you can see the table, so you can see the steps, so that you don't stumble over it. Light is primarily not something you look at, it's primarily something that allows you to look at other things. Jesus, again, saying we're to be the light of the world, to not keep our light under a bushel. He's not saying, go and flaunt how awesome you are. He's saying, let your light shine the truth, God's truth and his love on the people around you. What both of these images are meant to do is to say, what is our calling as Christians? It's not to fall into the trap most of us fall into, which is, I know I'm good because everybody says I'm good. Instead, Jesus says, you need to know God is working powerfully through you because the other people around you are becoming more good as a result of their conduct and, and connection with you. As a parent, as a co-worker, as a friend, as a church member, the question to ask is, am I having an impact on the people around me? And that is the evidence God says, Jesus says, that God and his Holy Spirit work through you because you are improving the surroundings in which God has placed you. That is a calling we are to have as Christians, to be other-oriented so that others will grow into the full stature of Christ. I mentioned that was my first point, what we're aiming for. But at the same time, to know we're aiming for it doesn't necessarily help us much unless we know how we can get to the place where we're aiming at. It's not an easy life to live. The life of always lifting other people up and not putting attention on yourself can be a difficult life to lead. 
Jesus says some words that are actually really, really hard at first glance because they're meant to be challenging to us. But in the end, as with everything Jesus ever says or ever does, so is underlaid by grace and the promise of God's love for us. This is what Jesus says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then later on, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound really hopeful? No, it, it doesn't at first, does it? Jesus uh, says here as well, like, I'm not going to change even one tiniest stroke of the law. Not one law is going to be changed. And in fact, look at those religious leaders who pride themselves on obeying the law. You have to be better than them. That might bring about a great amount of despair, might it? Well, in fact, to give us an idea about why Jesus says this and why this is hope is because right afterwards, and we'll look at some of it next week when we discuss further on the Sermon on the Mount, all of the things Jesus says right afterwards are because Jesus is saying, I have come not so that you become better and more obedient with your body in the things God tells you to do. I am coming so that you might fulfill the purpose of the law. And the purpose of the law is to make you a better person and not just a more obedient slave. Jesus here is saying, I in fact am like salt that is sprinkled on the law to bring out its true purpose and its true fulfillment. I am the one who came to fulfill it and to give you the power to fulfill it in your own lives. And one of the really important things about why Jesus says this is, you may have heard me say before that Matthew's gospel, which this is taken from, is often known as a very Jewish gospel. And that's because Matthew seems clearly to focus a lot about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And really very important to Matthew, they shows to his audience, who are probably Jewish Christians, that Jesus did not come to say to them, everything about Jewish life and traditions is all terrible. In fact, what we see here is that in many ways, Matthew models Jesus after Moses, the great prophet of the Jewish faith. Moses, you may remember, was born an Israelite while the Israel's nation were slaves in Egypt. And when he was born, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was a tyrant and said, I want to kill every Jewish boy so that the Hebrews don't populate too much. They're a threat to me. And so Moses is saved because his mother and father put him in a little basket and set him out by the river so that when the, the soldiers from Egypt come and search homes, they don't find him. And Moses is saved because Pharaoh's daughter brings him into the household and adopts him and raises him. Moses then leads the people by crossing through the Red Sea. And then after through the Red Sea, climbs up to Mount Sinai and he brings down the law, the Ten Commandments. What happens to Jesus? When Jesus is born, a tyrant, King Herod, wants to kill all the Jewish little boys in Bethlehem. But Jesus is saved by going to Egypt. When Jesus begins his ministry, we heard just a few weeks ago, how does he begin his ministry? By going to the Jordan River, by being baptized, going through the water into the desert, where he's tempted for 40 days. And then what do we see Matthew showing us? Jesus then climbs up a mountain and gives the law of Christian life. He says in the law of Christian life, I want you to understand not that the Old Testament's terrible, or don't obey the Ten Commandments, or all these things are stupid. No, he says, I came so that you can fulfill their purpose. And he goes on to say many really important things. We'll hear about anger, where Jesus says, uh, next week we'll read about how Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, if you have anger against your brother, you're guilty. If you call him a fool, you're guilty of hellfire. Or he says a little bit later about lust, and he says, you know, if your eye causes you to stumble, rip it out and throw it away. What is Jesus saying? He's saying it's all fine and good to be like the Pharisees who do things outwardly, but there's nothing different inside their own heart. 
And instead, they grit their teeth and they obey the law by willpower, but it does not make them a better person. All you need to do to understand this is to understand when we see people who are outwardly obeying, but inwardly they know, we know that they're not actually having their heart in it. Think about the guy, uh, you know, maybe who is a, a, a tyrannical boss. And he never gets in trouble with the HR department because he doesn't swear at people and he doesn't, doesn't touch them or attack them. And every time you go into his office, you always come out feeling like, I'm an idiot. Why? Because his entire tone is always one of contempt and anger and hatred. We know very well that that person may be obeying the law, but that is not a person obeying the spirit of the law, which is to uplift people. Or the person who outwardly doesn't commit adultery, but plays over daydreams and fantasies in their head about the people. We know that that is not the kind of person that lives a whole satisfied life. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law because he says what God wants of us is not just the person who grits their teeth and does it, but to be the person who not only doesn't murder their enemies, but actually loves their enemies. Who doesn't just look at the, the women or the men in their life who are attractive and say, well, I don't touch them or flirt with them, but to actually become a person who wants good for them and sees them as a brother or sister instead of somebody that I can project my fantasies and desires upon. And Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law because he says, I know you can't do it. I know you can't do it. If we were to say, look, never be angry, never call your brother a fool, my gosh, I would be in for an awful lot of judgment. Because I can think of how often, even on the drive to church, I call the people in front of me fools because of the way that they drive, right? If that is the standard, and Jesus says, you have to be better than the Pharisees, you have to do that something I can achieve, it brings nothing but despair. But Jesus says, I came, not me, not you. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And Jesus can bring the law to its fulfillment in us if we allow him to do these things in us. So Jesus' law here is not saying, here's another list of rules to follow that breaks your heart because you can't do them. He instead is saying, I am coming here to say, I will, through my grace, if you trust me, start changing you so that not only do you not murder a people, you start actually wanting good things for the enemies and challenging people in your life. What does Jesus say to us? He says elsewhere in Matthew, in Matthew 11, Come to me, you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of Christ's obedience, the yoke of following Jesus in faith, is not a cakewalk all the time. It is a yoke, which means you carry a burden, but the burden is light because Jesus is there walking next to us, carrying the burden with us. So how do we become the kind of person who's salt and who's light? Become that kind of person, not by repressing how we actually feel, but instead, again and again, bringing them to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I can't stand this person, and I'm not going to hide it. Help me to love them. Jesus, I'm attracted to this person. I know I shouldn't be, but I am. Help me to treat her as a sister and not as an object of desire. When Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law, he's saying, you can be salt, you can be light, but only if you allow my salt and my light to season you so that you might be transformed from the inside out. What's Jesus' call to us? Bring again and again the recesses of our heart who we truly are to him and say, Jesus, with your help, I can do what I cannot do by myself. Not only help me obey the law, but help me to love your law and your commandments and to love the righteousness you show forth in your life. Jesus, I want to be like you because, Jesus, I see in you the fulfillment of what humanity is supposed to be. The great hope we have is that Jesus says if we trust him, that's exactly what he'll make us. Starting out in this life, 
perfected in the next.